0: Listener
1: Production. G'day, I'm Scott Phillips, the Chief Investment Officer of The Motley Fool in Australia and the host of The Motley Fool Money Podcast. But of course, by now, you know that I'm also the host of this one, The Good Oil. And welcome and thanks for listening. Now, if you are new to the podcast, you may not be familiar with the phrase, the good oil. I'm reliably informed it's uh, an older phrase that uh, maybe, well, some older heads around might use, but not some of the young kids these days. So if you don't know, the good oil is all about giving someone the good oil, which is giving them the real stuff, the good stuff, the important stuff. It's the proper stuff, right? And that's exactly what we're here for. We're going to bring you conversations with entrepreneurs, executives, and experts people who know what's going on, and the people who make things happen. Now, today's guest is a bloke I've worked with now for a bit over three years. He is the Motley Fool's Director of Research. His name is Kevin Gandia. G'day, Kevin. How are you? G'day, Scott.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Mate, thank you for joining us, mate. So, we've worked together now for quite a while. You are our Director of Research, and... You're a super smart bloke with a really great perspective on a lot of things going on in the investing world. Now, while our our regular Motley Fool Money podcast is all about investing, this one isn't so much about that, but we do get a chance every now and again just to stop and pause and look around and kind of ask, What's going on, and what should we expect? And we've done that from a whole lot of different vantage points. We thought we just literally do it from investing, and there was no better bloke for me to ask than you. So, mate, I really appreciate you joining us. Um, you've been working for the Motley Fool for three years. You've had a really interesting career. So, I guess I'll, if I go all the way back, mate, how did you first start getting interested in investing? What, what kind of, when, when did that light go on? When did you kind of go, you know, what this might? Not even I've got a job in this, but just this might be a thing. I, I, I like the idea. I'm going to start investing. When did that happen?
0: I think I'd, I'd probably have to go back to my upbringing and my childhood. As you can probably tell from my accent, I didn't grow up in Australia. Um, I grew up in in Zimbabwe, which is a Southern African country. And so, yeah, I pretty much grew in a normal um, environment until I was roughly 10, 12 years old, somewhere around there, when a big, major economic shock hit, hit our country. Um, the, the, the kind of stuff you expect uh, from an emerging economy. Um, and so... I just began to have a very deep interest in the economy in general. I think for me, um, just growing up in that environment, I really wanted to um, be the sort of person who does understand what's going on uh, within the economy, someone who can navigate some of those dynamics, someone who can invest and build wealth for my family, um, and also just be able to, uh, I guess, create a pool of wealth that can um, help us, tide us over uh, as those inevitable economic shocks uh, uh, Come around, and so uh, I was a very curious curious person. Um, That curiosity led me all around the world. So I uh, moved to South Africa, studied there, worked in South Africa, um, moved to the United States first in Philadelphia and then in Los Angeles. Um, And and I worked worked, um, in financial services, uh, working mainly in professional services, but. Uh, some of the clients I worked with were uh, some top, top um, investors around the world. So in South Africa, I worked with some of the premier uh, private equity firms um, on the African continent actually in in, in the United States. Um, Oaktree Capital um, was one of my clients there. I obviously did not meet Howard Marks. um, (laughs) But uh, Double Line Capital was another uh, company I worked with. Uh, Jeffrey Gundlach is the founder. Actually, Oaktree invested in Double Line. Um, So I just learned a lot uh, about investing uh, in just became very inspired and uh, just decided to learn more about it.
1: Uh, again, I get asked so many questions as a result of that. You've obviously seen and been in so many different places. Um, as you as you as you grew as an investor, maybe maybe let's talk about some of the influences on on that process. Obviously, working with Double Line and Oak Tree, working in the US now here in Australia. Um, as you say, you've you've kind of been in so many different different places. How did your investing style develop? How, how, well, firstly, actually, let's go back to say, how would you describe your investing style? Maybe is a better way to do it. And then, how did that develop? What, what were some of the processes that you went through, or the lessons you learned as you did those different roles across those different countries, companies, um, and kind of you know grew as an investor?
0: Yeah, so I think. Um when, when I when I try to describe my investing style, I think if you try to style box me, uh, you'd probably say I'm a I'm a growth focused investor. Um, I don't necessarily believe in the the growth versus value type uh, style boxing of investors. Um, I think the way I kind of describe uh, my, my approach is I generally look for. Companies that I believe are, are true market leaders, true category leaders, uh, companies that are really trying to define their era uh, or define the, their sector, um, and I'm looking for companies that um, can go on to actually um, create transformational wealth for their employees, uh, for their for their investors, but also provide a service uh, that their customers can really enjoy and and, and really um, and, and and really focus on and, and really love. So um, that inevitably. Uh, leads me to very innovative companies, um, inevitably leads me to technology-type companies, um, but I don't necessarily just limit myself to just those specific industries. I also just like consumer-facing businesses, companies with brands that resonate with people. Um, so I guess that's, yeah, that's how I, I describe my, my style.
1: Nice man. And how, did, how did that develop? Did you, did, did you kind of all, is that just your natural kind of bent? You kind of went, you know what? This is what I feel good about. These are the businesses I like. This is what resonates with me. Or was it a case of going through the process, and sort of saying, well, where where is the best value to be? found? I, I say value not as in value investing, but where are the best opportunities to be found? Um, this this is seems like a, an area ripe for opportunities for investors in these sort of areas. Um, How did you you go about kind of arriving where you are now?
0: Yeah, so at some point in my career, I realised that I'd studied a finance and accounting degree. I'd worked with some top investment managers in the world, uh, but I still didn't quite understand um, how to invest for myself. And so I set out on a journey just to really just learn and and take in information and really just process it for myself. And so um, I was using so many of the, I guess, the products that um, were, were recommended as stocks to, to look at. Um, for example, Amazon, I'd never come across um, when I was in South Africa, but as soon as I stepped on the US, um, I was having Amazon pa- packages delivered to the, to my apartment uh, pretty much any, every second day. Uh, Netflix was a company that I was, you know, obviously streaming and watching Netflix videos um, pretty much every day. And when I was reading the, the news, what I was learning about those companies was inconsistent with what the uh, the motley fool was telling me about these companies, and so I, I just realized that you know these were just companies that were everywhere. In, uh, consumers were loving these brands um, and they were growing companies, and they were growing for a reason right There was a very strong product market fit and so I just realized that my framework for for how I look at and understand these businesses needed to change. I needed to look at these companies with a different uh, framework and so uh, that just developed from there and and uh, yeah i 've been looking at innovative uh, and growth companies uh, ever since so let's
1: let 's go from there. Um, I guess, to the Australian market. You, you've you moved to Australia. You've obviously, you know, learned a heap about the Australian companies and, and investing in the Australia on the ASX. But how how is the Australian market when it comes to the style of investing you're trying to, to follow?
0: I think um, the, the Australian stock market certainly uh, punches well above its weight. Uh, and, and there's certainly a market that... Um, can easily be overlooked because we don't necessarily have the Apples, the Nikes, the Visas and MasterCards, but we still do have payments companies that are growing, uh, consumer disruption companies that are growing phenomenally. And when you actually look at the averages, uh, the Australian stock market historically has performed just as well as the US stock market. And the Australian stock market still produces those big multi-bagger returns that every investor wants to have. And so um, I think it's just a question of understanding how the market works. Um, and I've certainly been on that journey to do that. And what I've really um, discovered is, well, you know, we've got a smaller companies, and if those smaller companies are looking to take on a big marketplace, If they're successful, you can potentially actually have uh, so much um, um, bigger returns. I think the other thing that's playing very well uh, into our, uh, I guess, into our hands as investors who look at the Australian market is in the US, they have a, a very... Sizable and well-established venture capital market. And so what you're seeing now in the US is it's taking longer and longer uh, for small businesses to actually hit the public markets in the US. And so, yeah, you may like Uber as a company, but by the time it gets to to, to public markets, it's a you know, $100 billion company or whatever the case is. And that's pretty much the same for uh, many of these big IPOs that you're uh, seeing and hearing from the US. Whereas in Australia, if you, if you need capital, yes, we do have an emerging venture capital space. Um, but also, Often companies are going to, to, to a list in Australia at a much earlier stage. And sometimes even American companies are choosing Australia as a place to list. Um, we've got an interesting company we follow called Life360. Uh, it's based out of San Francisco. Uh, full disclosure, it's, 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 it's a company we own and one of the portfolios I run at The Motley Fool. Um, and it's a company that's just been growing well and doing well. And they, they chose the Australian markets um, uh, as an earlier stage business to get exposure to capital, but also, um, I guess, uh, just be exposed as, as, a, as a publicly listed business and they've done quite well. So they weren't quite ready yet for the big um, US capital markets, but uh, they've they've done very well in Australia. So I think, um, you know, we shouldn't necessarily shun our local market uh, just because it doesn't have the big brands. I think you can still get fantastic returns uh, on the local markets. If anything, um, the small cap space can really produce um Big winners, and also even even in the the mid and large cap space, we we do tend to have companies that are quite globally relevant as well. Um, and I think just with with for example, Square coming into our market and buying up Afterpay um, is really just good validation of uh, some of the innovation that uh, we have uh, here in Australia.
1: That's a really good point. Man. Actually, our, our colleague Trevor Machedzi, who I spoke with uh, for a YouTube video, actually I think it was last week, told me something I didn't know. Apparently, since IPO. Realestate.com, now known as REA Group, has actually had a better return percentage-wise than, get this, Amazon.com. Wow. And so that exactly underpins exactly your point, which is that yes, REA is never going to be as big as Amazon, but because it went public earlier and at a, at a lower total dollar value price, that return for, for REA has actually been better percentage-wise than it was an Amazon. And you would, you know, I, I'm going to say, if, you, if someone asked me, I would have said, no, well, look, Australian companies haven't got the same headroom as some of the American companies they haven't got global markets necessarily, or it's harder to get into. So yeah, we're going to, we're not going to have the same just sheer size or growth. But there you go. Uh, to, to exactly your point, I'm glad we've had this conversation separately because you've exactly underlined the REA story. And I'm glad I could kind of throw that stat over the top. Mate, um, let's let's go back to we, we started talking about inflation interest rates before and I we you, you did a wonderful job of tackling it from a theoretical perspective, from an economic and environmental perspective. Let's go to the investing story now, because inflation, interest rates, how do you think about those two concepts. And then more broadly, how do you think about investing in a world where we may have over the next two or three years meaningfully higher inflation, potentially meaningfully higher interest rates, and, and what that impact might have on, on the stock market?
0: Yeah, so you know, as a as a as a long-term investor, I'm tempted to say, you know, just focus on the best companies you can find. The macro will sort itself out. And I think to, to some extent, um, there's an element of truth in that I think the um, the big winners will be the big winners and if you can find those companies then you'll probably do well um, um, even if we have modest um, inflation over the coming years but I do think there is an interesting dynamic which is essentially just the context and the background of how we got to where we are and the context is really we've we've had um, astonishing central bank policies. Um, Pretty much since the, the the global financial crisis, and the the backdrop is I think valuations are at a point where um, they're really sustained by those policies, uh, by by quantitative easing, and so I guess the the the, the macro worry for investors is um, high inflation. Uh, could potentially lead to high interest rates. Um, high interest rates have an effect on um, company valuations. Um, firstly, because you know discounting—if you're—if you're—if you're looking at a growth company with earnings, uh, expecting earnings in the future—if you're using a higher interest rate to discount those earnings, then you're coming with a lower um, valuation for that business. But also, it also changes the choices um, that institutional investors have to make uh, in a higher interest rate environment. Maybe bonds become uh, a bit more attractive, and maybe money. For Flows in that in that environment, or maybe bonds don't become so attractive if there's inflation as well, because um, you know they're losing value in real terms. So I think these are important questions uh, for investors to to think about. Um, ultimately, I think uh, the, some of this in terms of how it plays out is ultimately unknowable for investors. Um, and, and I think the, the question really becomes about uh, firstly, portfolio allocation, um, just being prepared for, uh, for, for, for things working out in a different way. So if, um, if you're expecting modest um, to higher inflation, uh, then you want to think about how that could affect your your portfolio. Uh, and then also, I think there are other things to, to consider for, for, for investors as well, which is, you know, how much cash do you need in that environment? Um, if, if inflation is, is higher than maybe, um, as, as Ray Dalio likes to say, cash is trash, um, uh, which is, which sounds controversial on the, on the face of it, but there's some, 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 some logic behind, behind it as well, um, But also what I also like to think about is how does this impact um, companies and their industries? How does this impact um, management teams and how they make decisions uh, about where they invest, where they choose to invest um, and how they um, deploy their capital? Um, Ultimately, Um, I just follow what the companies are telling us and the analysis that we and my wonderful team of analysts that we have at the fore have on those individual companies and how they are uh, thriving within the overall market environment. So um, I think whilst it's very, very important to understand the context of what's happening um, um, in the world, I also think these dynamics do play out over I mean, they've been playing out over decades now, um, and so um, you can't stop in- necessarily stop investing out of fear, um, but you do have to be prepared uh, for things that can go in either way.
1: In, in one version of the future, interest rates are held down for longer, like the RBA suggests. A small move at the time it's required has enough of an impact, and we're sitting here in five years' time saying, "Yeah, interest rates are at zero point five percent," and uh, you know we, we, we've had another five years without recession. In a different version of the world, interest rates go up to one5 or 2%. Maybe even the RBA said a couple of weeks ago, mate neutral might be between two and a half and three. And that's not the rate we're paying. That's the rate the RBA is is paying the banks. They're going to add a couple of percentage points on top of that. Given that sheer range, that the breadth of possible outcomes, I'm not saying, well, inflation is going to go up. How do we pray for what's going to happen because we know where we're going to finish? It's still an uncertainty. How, how, how does an investor in an average ASX company think through how they allocate capital in a, in a world where that is uncertain?
0: Yeah, so I think you just have to think about um, the individual companies that you are invested in, um, I think, in a in a higher interest rate environment, in an environment where there's not as much uh, quantitative easing, then I think um, companies at a hundred times sales become more challenging uh, to invest in. Uh, so maybe you you know you you want to think about not having a, having a whole portfolio filled uh, with companies um, at that valuation. So I think maybe.
1: Um, can you tell me why, mate? Just just break it down for listeners who are saying, "Why does it matter? Why hundred times sales is a lot today, let alone let alone in a, in a higher rate environment? Why why does why do higher rates make those less investable?"
0: So as an investor, what are we trying to do? We're trying to earn a return uh, from our investment in in those companies. Um, And investment returns pretty much come from a a number of things. The first thing is just earnings growth for the business. So um, if the company can continue to grow its sales and profits over time, uh, then all else equal, then the share price will respond to that growing um, sales and earnings. Um, The other thing is the market can decide to pay a higher multiple for the same um, dollar of sales and profit and so um, if the market is you know you can still gain um, great appreciation even if the company is earning the same uh, profit no growth but if the market chooses to pay double um, the multiple that it was before then you've actually doubled your share price so that's a source of return but that multiple expansion can work in the other way as well. It can also contract. So um, if the if the market suddenly decides to pay half the multiple uh, for the same dollar of earnings and profit, uh, then obviously your you, the share price can halve, uh, even though there's no actually actual earnings impact um, there. So it's just it's just about understanding the company dynamics and also just the market dynamics as well, um, and and how those are impacted. And I think. Um, as investors, I think we also have to look at history and understand what has happened in the past, what can happen in the future. Um, so, if you if you look back to the to, to to I guess to the early stages of the I guess the tech, the, the tech boom, um, the the late nineties. Everything was going well. There were companies popping out uh, with dot-coms after their names. Um, These companies were, some of them were really growing. Some of them had no sales. um, And yeah, just the valuations were quite stretched. Um, One of those companies, we've mentioned Amazon, and I also own Amazon shares, by the way, Scott, um, was obviously doing really, really well in that environment, just looking at their share price. And then as that... um, bubble essentially popped as that deflation happened, um, the share price really suffered, I think down 80% or something like that, even though the business continued to grow. And so um, investors who looked at Amazon from a fundamental perspective um, and thought, man, I like the CEO, I like this company, I think it can grow on to, become, to do big things, um, certainly would have still suffered from that drop. Uh, but then the performance of the business was just so um, overwhelming that the share price eventually responded to that. Or um, you could look at other companies that didn't necessarily um, um, survive from that. It actually went went, went bankrupt. So I'm, this, this is not me being, a I guess, a doomsday, uh, a prophet of doom or anything like that. Uh, but it's really just the reality of how the, the markets work. I, I, I actually do think we're, we're currently in a period where whilst um, on the on the economic side there are some things to think about inflation interest rates I think on the business side there are also some interesting happening interesting things happening in the form of just unprecedented levels of innovation um, and I think capitalism, even though um, there's a lot of debate about that, particularly in the US. Um, I, st- I still think there's it's still strong. There's a lot of uh, companies that are being um, created, that are growing, that are thriving, um, that are really uh, providing a very uh, high level of value add services uh, for their employees. And as investors, we can participate in that. So I think the overall spot, yeah, it's just really about um, understanding those fundamental dynamics, um, understanding why what's happening is happening, um, and just being able to respond to that well uh, with your portfolio.
1: I like that, mate. And you've taken me to a nice place. I was going to ask you about tech, and you've you finish off just in a lovely spot there. But you, you're also right. I think yeah, you know, I'm reminded of Apple during the GFC. Um, even businesses like Flexi Group, which has fallen on really tough times recently, um, but they grew during. Even even recessions, you know, a little bit of inflation, higher interest rates, not great. Generally speaking, for asset values, but in a growing economy, you've got that offset. But businesses that have that are relevant, that are be, becoming more relevant over time, offering more things to more people and taking share, can even grow even in those circumstances. And your point at the very beginning of the answer was, you talked about there's an inflation environment across the ASX, but there's also just that sense of. I won't say even hyperinflation because that gets a bit gets hyperbolic at some point. But even high inflation is not going to not going to tear down the results you're going to get from a company that has 5, 10, 20 years of really top notch growth ahead of it, right? And again, you're not a growth investor using that that you know quote in or uh, that that name in air quotes, but the whole idea of if the business does the heavy lifting, if you can find those businesses, you can almost not exactly ignore the valuation thing because you said, Amazon fell 80%, but if you withstood that fall, I guess that is the point, right? That um, over over the long term, if you can find a business that's going to be multiples of its size in the future, that is going to overwhelm almost any inflationary environment or interest rate changes that are made by central banks.
0: Yeah, 100%, that's true. And, and um, along with my just wonderful team of analysts that we have at the fall, so we basically run... Um, those type of scenario analysis uh, on the companies we look at. Uh, so just trying to understand if the multiple were to have uh, over the next five years or so, what needs to be true for this company to still deliver um, the, the type of equity return that we'd like it to deliver. So how, how much growth does the business uh, need to actually deliver um, in a scenario where the multiple is down 25% or 50% or uh, anything like that. So I think there are different ways you can kind of stress test um, um, the, how these companies can respond but then again these are just um, these are just assumptions that you you, you apply to a model um, they're not necessarily designed to be um, accurate or to not, not just accurate, but they're not not—they're not a foolproof uh, method of, um, of of trying to evaluate companies. It's really just uh, a sense check uh, of of what could happen and what could potentially be the scenario. And I think diversification is also important. Uh, some things we will just get wrong, and that's true for any investor out there. So uh, we also have to keep that in mind as well.
1: Matt, I love the fact that you've said, look, you're not really a tech investor, you're not really a growth investor. You tend to find opportunities in both those areas or areas that are Described by others as tech or growth. Um, and by the way, I think that's perfect. I think that the, the dichotomy between value and growth is, I think what Charlie Mungo said, they're joined at the hip. I think it's a silly distinction to make and to try and box yourself into something just because you need a label, I think, is, is silly and it closes down opportunities. That being said, you are in those spaces as probably defined by others right now. I do wonder, you know, David Gardner or yourself or other people, if you go back. 20, 30, 40 years, uh, would it have been technology? Probably not. It would have been opportunities in other areas that, and well, honestly, maybe it was tech at the time, right? If, if photocopiers were technology, maybe it would have been tech because it is innovation maybe rather than technology that's kind of at, at the forefront. But I wonder if you can kind of talk through, let's talk through tech because that is a place where you're finding a lot of opportunities right now. And maybe for our listeners just, and again, I, I, I want to be really clear with our listeners just to, you know, we, we are providing general financial advice to some degree. So we're not saying every tech company has this or every tech company with this will be successful, but pattern recognition is important. And when a certain industry tends to have certain dynamics or criteria or, or opportunities... Uh, they can be true in in multiple companies in the same sort of industry or, or category. So, what is it about tech right now, mate, that is getting your attention? That is making for an attractive place to you for you to be deploying your capital, the company's capital, and making recommendations for our members.
0: So, I think the first thing to note about technology is the unit economics um, of just the industry and how it's um, these companies are structured and built. Are very very attractive. These companies are very light in terms of the their capital needs. They can really scale and grow uh, without necessarily needing uh, to build manufacturing plants and offices and all that kind of stuff. So there's there's a scale element to this that really allows these companies to to grow globally. Um, a, at a very fast pace uh, without necessarily just needing a lot of that. So just the the, the struc- structural advantages to, to the, the, the industry itself that make it quite attractive from an investing perspective. But as you rightly point out, um, just because something is a tech company doesn't necessarily make it a great investment. Um, so I think what's really attracting me uh, is that there are some companies that are finding, firstly, great product market fit. So companies that are just built for the time uh, and are able to really capitalize on what exactly what's happening in the marketplace. Uh, because if you can find those types of companies, uh, it means that you have a company that ha- has the potential to really grow and scale. And when a tech company is growing and Scaling, then it means that it's it's really working to its advantages, and that's where, as an investor, um, some interesting opportunities um, can arise. I think right now, if you find if you ask me like what I'm finding particularly interesting, I think what I'm, what I'm finding interesting is there's We've, we've been through a period where a lot of the groundwork um, was being laid under the surface in terms of infrastructure. And so now we're at a point where companies can really just build innovations on top of that um, into infrastructure. So if you think about just um, retail, for example, in the past, if you wanted to set up a shop to sell, you know, good oil T-shirts and, and, and sneakers and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> we should do that. We yeah, do that. maybe you should, Scott. <laughs> If you wanted to do that, you actually would have needed to... Um, Uh, find uh, a a, a retail space, um, lease it out from a landlord, um, hire some people, um, stack all the rails with those T-shirts and sneakers um, and and advertise and all that kind of stuff. There's a lot of upfront capital you needed to deploy um, to do that. But now you could actually set up an e-commerce store Pretty much, you know, within a couple of minutes or hours, um, you know, get the branding sorted out, have a prototype developed for the type of product you want to sell, um, and you can get that up and running within a weekend. Um, and you could test it out just with a couple of products, and you know, if people buy it and people like it, then you can add more. You can redeploy those sales and grow that business um, organically um, in that way. And Really, that's possible because of companies like Shopify, uh, which which allow, and I own shares in Shopify, by the way, um, which allow um, retailers to build on top of that infrastructure to be able to do that. And Shopify itself uh, is benefiting from other technologies uh, like cloud computing, which allows them to um, to have been able, and the internet uh, in general, um, which allows which which allowed them to be able to build their infrastructure on top of that as well. So um, it's just so amazing what can be done uh, in such a short 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 space of time, um, and so from an investing perspective that 's very interesting i think we' we're, we're at a time where even just five ten years is such a long time um, in, in, in the in the business world um, at the moment it really yeah, is, so can yeah. you believe that yeah. even a company like Facebook uh, was really just founded in two thousand and four um, Tesla was founded in two thousand and three I mean moderna. Uh, was founded in 2010 and it's helping us fight the pandemic um, at the moment Um, and just on the ASX Zero founded in 2006 after pay 2014 Um, and these companies are able to do what they do uh, because they're they're able to build on top of existing infrastructure so the groundwork has been laid Um, you like the word zeitgeist Scott so I think the the zeitgeist is correct so
1: (laughs) very nice man I'm also by the way looking forward to these uh, Kevin Gandia exclusive good oil merchandise that we're going to be selling. I'll go (laughs) your halves. Uh, We might might set up a Shopify shop after we finish this call. Speaking of which, the iPhone, 2007. I mean, literally the entire concept of the smartphone is 14 years old. I mean, I guess arguably BlackBerry were smartphones, but not the way we know them today. Uh, I mean, that is is bizarre, as you say. And that's 14 years where life has changed entirely. And I think that's really, really important. But let me let me uh, throw you then a quote from Howard Marks. Marks actually, now he's you know he's a distressed debt investor. He's a bond guy. These are the crotchety old, boring blokes. You know that even make the rest of us investors look smart and uh, and uh, and fun and exciting. Um, even Marks in his most recent letter talked about the fact that, and he went back you know five and ten years and said the companies that were at the top of the pops, leading the S and P 500 or whatever it was back then. Almost none of them are these days at the top of those particular indices. And not only that, he's actually saying, "Look, in future, this will this will change even faster. That if you're expecting to invest as if today, or so tomorrow is going to look like today, you're making a mistake." And this is again, this is this is not from you know someone who's invested in banks and in infrastructure companies their whole lives and is you know or or, or, or the flip side—it's not from some hyper tech investor who's saying, "I've always said this, now I'm saying it again." And not that Marx is—you know—I'm not. Well, I don't want to paint Marx as some sort of backwards-thinking investor, but you know, he's—he—he's he, he's not the fad guy, right? He's not the guy who's out there waving the flag for tech or anything else. He's just saying you've got to realize this—this is changing. H- how do you then think about investing? We're long-term investors at the Motley Fool. That gets maybe it gets harder, maybe it gets easier, maybe it gets better, maybe the returns come or more returns come. But h- how do you how do you have a a service, a career, a portfolio, a, a personal portfolio as a long term investor in a space where even someone like Marx is saying, "Dude, you got to be ready because stuff's going to change fast."
0: I think, and I, I love that Howard Marx um, memo that you're referring to, by the way, because it's just. Um he writes some very long memos, so you gotta be prepared for those. But um there's a lot of good stuff in there. Um I think I think he's absolutely right in terms of um how in I, I spoke earlier about the right having the right framework. I think that is absolutely spot on. I think investors uh certainly need to have the right framework that's applicable for the times um and that's relevant for what you're trying to achieve. Um I think. In- investors are trying to build portfolios right now certainly need to be looking at how innovative are um, uh- is the company uh, and how is this company thinking about deploying capital um, to, to grow the business um, going forward? Obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about companies more that are trying to, to grow. So so there's obviously different contexts. Some companies may necessarily uh, may not be trying to do that. And some investors may just be looking for, um, you know, income from the, from the investments and stuff like that. But for investors looking for capital appreciation, which is really where I, I like to focus on, I think innovation, uh, and it is a cliche, it is it is a buzzword, um, but it is absolutely true that um, a forward thinking management team um, that is trying to continuously grow and innovate becomes really, really important. Um, I- We've seen it um, with with some of our mega caps, uh, global mega caps um, at the moment. If you just read um, Google's um, uh, earnings report, um, I, I think investors actually do need to read these, some of these earnings reports, whether they own shares in the company, and again, I own shares in Google, or not. Uh, I think they're just great places to learn about what's happening in the world. Um, when you read these earnings reports, it's, it's easy to, to read the news and think, oh, these are so, so, such large companies worth a trillion dollars or more. Um, they possibly can't grow more. Uh, but then when you, when you read about what they're doing, they're really growing fast. Um, they're finding new areas to invest in. Um, they're really profitable. They've got so much cash and they're looking to deploy that cash. Um, and so, I think on the one hand, um, if you're looking at those companies that are quite innovative and forward thinking, I think, and trying to understand them in terms of what they can continue to do in the future, then that's kind of the right framework. What does worry me from what Howard was saying is basically, uh, he's got a quote here where he's saying, anyone who believes all the firms on today's list of leading growth companies will still be there in five or 10 years has a good chance of being proved wrong. And, and I think that's where it gets um, super interesting. I think, conceptually that sounds about right. If you looked at the top 10 highest market cap companies in the U S over the last say 5,200 years, it's just always changing. Right. So, um, I think it's prudent to accept, to, um, accept that at some point, um, there'll be a new Amazon and a new Google. Um, and, and yeah, that's what we try to do. We try to look for companies that are, uh, looking to disrupt and looking to grow, um, I also liked what he talked about and said about uh, words like stable, defensive moat will be less relevant in the future. I'd argue um, they're less relevant now. Not necessarily that they're not relevant conceptually, uh, but more so that they're hard to apply uh, as a framework to get investment returns, because by the time something is proven to be stable, defensive, and has a a great mode, um, you've probably... Uh, at that point, you left a fair bit of upside, and then you're still taking the the, the, the punt that that will continue uh, going forward. So it's really hard at that point uh, to, to actually outperform um, using that as a framework. Uh, but I think investors, yeah, just need to continuously be curious and learning about what's happening in the world, trying to figure out which companies are leading in their categories um, and trying to understand what's not necessarily uh, mocking or shunning what's happening within uh, the technology industry because we all use technology in any case. And so um, I don't even look at it as technology because I think every company pretty much in one way, shape or form is a form of a technology company anyway. So, um, So a few things to think about there. Now,
1: I'm gonna ask you for some stock recommendations for our listeners because we've got to get some value out of well, not some value, extra value out of you, give us lots of value already. We're gonna get some specific value out of you with some stock recommendations, but I'm gonna make that my fifth question of my four regular questions so that our listeners have a chance. I know they can actually let you hit pause, but go and grab a notepad while we'll you listen to Kevin answer our regular questions. And at the very end, you've got to wait till the very end. I'm going to, uh, to ask him for some stock picks. Mate, um, let's go to our regular questions. First one, I, I've said before, by the way, I stole some of these from other podcast hosts, including Barry Ritholtz of Masters in Business. So I, um, what do they say? Uh, the greatest compliment is to copy someone else. So here you go. What are you reading and watching at the moment? Mate, are you a streamer? Are you a reader? Are you a go-to-the-movies kind of guy? Now that we can do that again. Um, what have you been watching and reading? What's taking up some of your time?
0: Well, I'm a, I'm a streamer, um, but I haven't had that much streaming time since my daughter was born roughly a year ago. So um, <laughs> recently watched yeah, um, uh, uh, Shang-Chi. We're big Marvel fans. Um, we followed the Marvel series for a while. So Shang-Chi is a, a movie my wife and I uh, caught up on um, so a couple of weeks ago. But in terms of what I'm reading, um, I'm at that point, Scott, where I love rereading books um, that I've that I've read before. I, I love to. I find the first time I read a book, um, there's a lot of uh, eye opening things that I learn, but I but a lot of that I tend to forget. Um, uh, and so when I when I reread the book, um, some of those concepts um, start to um, stick again. And sometimes I just enjoy it so much, I just want to read it again. So I'm currently rereading rereading a book uh, called Davis Dynasty by John Rothschild, um, and this is. It just, I'm just really fascinated about this family and uh, what they were able to do. And I'm just fascinated in general uh, about intergenerational wealth. Uh, it's almost taboo to talk about it uh, at this point, especially if you're following uh, US politics, Scott. Uh, but I think um, genuinely, this is something that most investors are trying to achieve, not from a money hungry, I just want to pile up all the, the money in my spare bedroom type thing, but really uh, from a trying to Create economic security for their families. Um, The book is about a guy called Shelby Davis. Uh, He invested, his 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 wife came from a fairly uh, well-to-do family, uh, but he he did not, and he he was able to invest his wife's uh, capital, uh, roughly fifty thousand dollars, and he multiplied that by eight thousand times across three generations. So his children and his grandchildren uh, went on to be um, investors as well. So they just had an ultra long term view to investing. And they were able to translate um, just the lessons of investing across um, different in, uh, uh, generations. And as someone who just recently became a parent, um, I'm just really trying to, um, you know, pass on uh, as much as I know about investing to the next generation of, of investors, uh, my daughter included, but also other people's daughters and sons, uh, just trying to Um, educate as much as I can and share some of the lessons because I've I've stood on the shoulders of giants Uh, I've learned so much so much from other people and as much as I can uh, contribute and and help others to to learn as well as I'll do that uh, for the rest of my life so I'm just yeah reading about um, how different generations have been able to learn about investing from each other
1: Nice, oh, so That's that's awesome. I love that answer. Hey, um, what, what trends are you watching? We've talked a little bit about trends now, but we, we talked about them in, in a broader, in a broader context. I am almost certainly going to have you back at some point next year, mate, because we've got so much stuff to talk about. And some of these big trends, some of the things you're watching, are really, really important. And they are hopefully for for you and for your members and for our portfolios. Um, some of the trends that will create huge amounts of value. But maybe you could pick one or two. Just just give us a quick sense of why you watch them and, and what's exciting.
0: Yeah, so I could go full Cathy Wood and talk about genomics and um, how, how... Go for it, mate, wherever you want to go. Yeah, I, I think for me, um, so I, I really love to learn about um, what I call true market leaders, the companies that are really defining uh, their time. So if you think about 2020, it was really about work from home and vaccine stocks. So Zoom, Moderna uh, were companies to think about then. And, and And this year, I feel like it's been a year to think about you know semiconductor companies nvidia a m um, d because as you know there's there's been a, a semiconductor shortage shortage uh, which is um, affecting you know the price of electronics and used cars even and all that kind of stuff uh, one thing I'm really fascinated about as a trend uh, at the moment is um, I guess what happens as the the world and the economy reopens um, People have uh, learned to to work from home, but also some still do crave uh, going back into the office. Um, We've been in a period where uh, traveling overseas was was quite difficult or impossible to do. Uh, And so how do, uh, and I think we've also seen um, people really had a chance to think about uh, what they want to actually do with their lives. Um, do they want to travel? Do they want to um, move closer to family? Uh, do they want to start a new, a different career? And so all of that, um, how does that impact human behavior? Uh, with, in the US, they're actually talking about the, the great resignation. And I think that's also kind of happening in, in, in Australia as well. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really thinking about um, that trend and how people are behaving. Um, and how does it impact companies like Airbnb, which is a company I'm a company I'm very very interested in at, at the moment, uh, and how they can sort of play into uh, that reopening. the same way Zoom uh, played into the the, the lockdowns and work well from home.
1: We definitely have to have this uh, have this follow up podcast, mate. I <laughs> make notes as I'm speaking. Hey, um, let's go to let's get to investing itself. We haven't, I mean, so much stuff we haven't covered. But if you had if there are people listening now who might be considering either a career change or maybe they're early and thinking about what they want to do in their career, um, what advice would you give someone? Who was interested in a job in investing, mate?
0: I would say um, what what I've learned and what I'd advise anyone trying to, I guess, get into the investing world is be as curious as you can be. Um, try to learn uh, for yourself and think for yourself. Um, don't necessarily take the, the the newspaper headlines and essentially just. Regurgitate and repeat that. Uh, try to actually learn at a at a first principles level um, um, what what as much as you can from different people, and make up your mind about what you think um, is is the right approach. Uh, and don't be afraid to have an opinion. We live in a world where you can actually set up a blog. You can actually even <laughs> write for The Motley Fool as a, as a contract writer for us. Or you can just have a Twitter account and share your opinions, put them out there, get feedback uh, from different people. And I would I would say uh, pay it forward as well. Um, don't necessarily expect to just get a job uh, or to set up a fund uh, and, and just make money. But... Um, have a view of, uh, really trying to learn and educate, um, as much as you can. And if you're working with someone, even if you're not working in an investment role, if you're working with one of the things Scott, that I've really taken on board is, um, trying to be as helpful as I can to the people around me. I find, um, as, as you help other people, they, they really, um, look to pay you back in one way form or another and opportunities just open up um, in that way and being your authentic self uh, can really take you so far my personal journey is of someone who uh grew up in zimbabwe you know lived in south africa lived in the u.s and now um happily lives in, in australia and that journey i use that experience uh from that journey all the time um and i'm just i just try to be my authentic self so there's, it's so hard to compete with uh, people who are just being um, authentic, and so if you if you live your life that way, I, I think opportunities will um, will will come your way.
1: And hey, mate, we are extraordinarily lucky to have you. I said I was going to ask you for your stocks at the end, but I like my last question too much, so I'm holding off the last question. I'm going to ask you for the stocks instead. Um, but if you wouldn't mind, I've already asked you, so I'm sure you won't mind sharing a couple of. Stock recommendations with our audience, companies that you like, and maybe just like a one sentence. We, we can't do this in detail, guys. So when Kevin gives this, and I'll say on your behalf, mate, um, we we you know we do our best to have as many winners as we can, but we're focused on maximising the value of your portfolio and our scorecards, um, not being right every single time. So uh, I think I'm about six out of ten uh, for Share Advisor. I'm not sure what your your uh, your result is at EO. It doesn't really an extreme opportunities. So I'll mention that in a second. Uh, the service that you run, but more far more importantly, I just want people to know that these are Kevin's ideas. He thinks. They are winners. Uh, but as always, everyone who gives stock picks is going to be wrong sometimes. I'm sure Kevin's going to be right in this case, by the way. But uh, but just to just a, just a flag that he doesn't have to do that, that disclaimer. Now over to you, buddy.
0: Yeah, so I've kind of uh, named up a couple of uh, stocks as we've had this discussion. But when I think about ASX companies that I really like at this point, um, NetWealth stands out to me. Uh, the ticker's NWL. Just a few things about that company um, – Firstly, the founder, um the founders are uh, actually Michael and Matt Hain, uh, father and son co-running this company, listed business, and they own over fifty percent of the company last time I checked. And it's just phenomenal that um they can have so much uh at stake uh in, 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 in a company that big. Uh and it's It's probably the uh, most dominant disruptor within its space. It's a platform business. Uh, Scott, we've had a YouTube uh, discussing this company. And just the way they run their business is... The way you and I would would run our business, Scott, if we if we had a business that we were running, just um, in partnering with, with with their shareholders, um, they've they've done very well. They're fairly wealthy. We've we've spoken to to them a couple of times. They're just very humble people. Um, even if you look at their accounting, um, they run it in a very prudent way. They they try to expense as much as, as of their research and development costs as possible. They're not really trying to capitalize it and just juice up the profits. Um, uh, it's a growing company very profitable company, high margins. uh, I think it's got so much uh, market opportunity to grow. And so NetWealth, NWL is the ticker. It's a company that I like a lot. Another one I'll just mention quickly is Janison Education. It's a smaller company, J-A-N-E. Is the ticker, and they provide education uh, software, um, and and basically what they what they what their software is used to do is basically uh, allow for digital assessments, uh, so 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 you know exams to be able to be to, to be done online, and they partner with some great organizations and governing bodies around the world. They have a presence in around 117 countries. Uh, So OECD, NAPLAN, uh, Chartered Accountants, New South Wales Education. Um, And they're also doing PISA for schools as well. So just so much that they're doing within the education space. Again, it's a um, software business, so very much scalable. Uh, Their founder and vice chairman owns uh, around Twenty something percent of the business, so again, another healthy chunk um, that uh, is is owned by insiders of these businesses. So generally, um, you know, I like businesses with large market opportunities, uh, businesses that are growing, businesses that have a service offering that their customers resonate with, um, businesses that can scale, um, and just businesses with great management teams in place um, that can really implement their vision and and grow the business.
1: Nice, mate. There you go, Phil. Well, not only a smart investor and a lovely bloke, as you can tell, but a couple of free stock tips, which I don't hope you weren't expecting because uh, now you've got some. And that's uh, always nice to have an unexpected privilege. Mate, um, uh, last question then. This is my favourite one. It's my one we always end in. What are you optimistic about? I'm an optimist. I think you're an optimist. Uh, judging by the, the time we've spent together and also by your comments today, what are you optimistic about, mate?
0: I'm very optimistic about human ingenuity. Um, the world has so many problems and uh, – we do hear about so much about those problems every single day um, <laughs> in the news and society. Uh, but there's some very smart entrepreneurs out there who are genuinely trying to solve those problems, uh, genuinely trying to make um, the world a better place. And as investors, we have the luxury and the privilege of being able to sit in our offices, learn about these stories, learn about these industries, um, and invest alongside these entrepreneurs uh, in some of these great ideas and hopefully uh, profit from them whilst also making the world uh, a better place. So I think just whilst we've had a tough couple of years with this pandemic, uh, we've, we've been able to get this far, I think, through human ingenuity. And I think uh, there's going to be so much more opportunities, not just in healthcare, not just in technology, um, but in a whole range of industries and sectors um, that are just going to make the world such a better place and yeah, create so much great opportunities for investors.
1: That is a wonderful way to finish off our podcast, mate. If you've enjoyed hearing from Kevin, and I absolutely am. guarantee you have, you can follow Kevin on Twitter. He's at Kevin Gandia. That's Kevin, G-A-N-D-I-Y-A. Kevin Gandia on Twitter. Um, you can also join extreme opportunities to service he runs I'm not doing this as an ad necessarily uh, but I just figure KG that people who've <laughs> heard just be like he sounds great I want some more of that um, you can join EO for a really really cheap price uh, just go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast I promise you this podcast isn't about you You know it's not about us trying to sell stuff because you've learnt a heap over the last hour or so I did go over time um, you can learn a heap from Kevin and if you want to join the service that he runs uh, fool.com slash podcast. if you don't that's completely cool too uh, but that's how you can find some more of Kevin if you're enjoying this please do like and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already through your favourite podcast app uh, we're on all the social medias where good oil podcast if you're on Insta Twitter or on Facebook it's all Good Oil Podcast is our handle. Uh, We tweet occasionally from that, mainly when there's new episodes coming up or interesting stuff that you might want to know about related to the podcast. And in this case, I've already tweeted about this podcast while we were recording, KG, because I was enjoying it so much. I wanted our followers to know there's some really, really cool stuff coming up and they're listening to it right now. Mate, thank you very much for spending your time with us. I really appreciate it.
0: Thanks, Todd. Appreciate it.
1: This podcast is hosted by me, Scott Phillips. It's produced excellently by Beth Gibson and audio imaged brilliantly by Link Kelly. Listener.